I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 52, The Right of Sodomy, and I'll be reading from The Right of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, by Randy Ingle, volume 1, pages 196 to 209. Whereas Oscar Wilde gave his male consorts silver cigarette cases, Krupp designed solid gold insignias in the shape of artillery shells adorned with two cross forks to identify members of his innovative fraternity. Krupp also created ritualistic homosexual orgies on the formerly hallowed site and even permitted some of these to be photographed. It did not take long for reports and photos of Krupp engaged in sodomy and other sex acts with young pre-adolescent children to reach the Italian police and government officials. A formal high-level investigation of Krupp's activities at the Grotto was completed in the spring of 1902, and the government of Victor Emmanuel II ordered Krupp out of the country. To emphasize its displeasure, Berlin was informed by diplomatic courier that Krupp was now persona non grata in Italy. The Kaiser, who was well aware of Krupp's double life, accepted the Italian reproof with a minimum of concern, and the matter was put on the back burner. As for Krupp, he didn't get overly excited. The Capri affair was covered up just like all his other indiscretions had been. Besides, there were other islands he could buy and colonize. This time, however, Krupp was wrong. The genie was out of the bottle. Given the publicity surrounding the Carabinieri's investigation of Krupp's activities on Capri, it was not long before the Italian press picked up the scent of an international scandal of the top magnitude. According to William Manchester, one of Krupp's biographers, the fact the first papers to break the story were propaganda in Naples and Avanti in Rome. Less than a week later, the German Catholic paper Ausburger Postzeitung, using a Rome dateline, carried a lengthy article on Krupp's sex circus at the Sacred Grotto. Although Fritz Krupp was not named in the article, he was readily identifiable by the description of the key villain, a great industrialist of the highest reputation with intimate connections in the imperial court. On November 15, Berlin's less scrupulous socialist democratic journal, Vorwarts, volume 268, in an article titled Krupp auf Capri, exposed Excellence Krupp as a pederastic fiend and demanded that the public prosecutor's office begin legal action against Krupp under paragraph 175 of the German Penal Code. This feigned indignation of the socialist leaders was rather ironic considering the fact that their party was on record as opposing paragraph 175. Also, whatever his personal crimes, Fritz Krupp was, by contemporary standards, a progressive and fair employer of the 50,000 factory workers that manned Krupp Industries. In any case, Krupp and his agents put the Kaiser and his advisors on high alert. Within hours of Fritz, Fritz's telegraphed plea to the Imperial Palace for help, German's chancellor, Germany's chancellor was ordered to prepare a legal brief against the publishers of Vorwärts, and the Imperial Police raided the offices of the Social Democratic Party, SPD, and confiscated all copies of the offending issue. Krupp, a la vide, a la wild, reluctantly prepared to sue both the Augsburger Postzeitung and Vorwärts for criminal libel. As if all this damning publicity weren't enough, the Canon King's troubles were further complicated by problems at home. In early October of 1902, after receiving an anonymous mailing filled with clippings of her husband's sexual misadventures in Capri, Krupp's wife, Marga, asked the Kaiser to intervene in the matter. The possibility of having Fritz declared incompetent was discussed by Kaiser Wilhelm and Frau Krupp, but not acted upon. Margaret Krupp was simply told to be silent. When she would not be quiet, it was she, not Fritz, who was put away. On November 2, with the tacit approval of the Emperor, Krupp had his wife forcibly taken from their castle at Villa Hilgel 
and committed to a private asylum in Jena as a lunatic. On November 21, Krupp was advised that doctors were coming to the castle to discuss the final disposition of his insane wife. Fritz was unwilling to commit his wife for life and to deprive his two daughters, his two young daughters, of their mother. Such a cowardly act would be useless and unworthy of a Krupp. Besides, it was plain that the whole world would soon know of the ignominious fall of Kruppdom. Krupp believed that there was only one way out for him, and he took it. According to Manchester, a hasty cover-up of Krupp's suicide was arranged with the cooperation of the household staff by the four visiting physicians who arrived at the castle the morning of November 22, 2000, 1902. After Fritz's body was discovered by a servant, Marga was immediately released from her confinement to attend her husband's funeral, after which she forbade any further legal action to clear Fritz's name, thus bringing the ugly scandal to a quick and merciful end. Although the crop of hair is more than a century old, it continues to be topic of interest of to homosexual activists in this country and abroad as evidenced by the numerous pro-homosexual websites that carried details of the suicide, but not for reasons one might readily ex suspect. It appears that prior to the Capri expose, socialist party leaders had already been tipped off that Herr Krupp was an active pederast. The alleged informer was said to have been a Berlin physician with ties in to Berlin's homosexual underworld. He had attempted to blackmail the web's wealthy industrialist out of 100,000 marks, but had failed. The collaborating evidence provided by the informer when combined with the Italian press reports against Krupp made it possible for the publishers of Forgarts to go for the juggler of their political foe. And who was this alleged informer? He was reputed to be none other than the young Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld, the head of Berlin's Scientific Humanitarian Committee, SHC, a pro-homosexual pseudo-scientific propaganda organization. The irony of Hirschfeld's alleged treachery was that the SHC was de dedicated to the elimination of anti-sodomy laws and the legal protection of homosexuals like Krupp. Magnus Hirschfeld and Germany's The Rights of the Behind Movement. Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld was only 34 years old when the Krupp affair broke out, yet he was already the acknowledged leader of the German sexual emancipation movement. As with Simmons and Ulrichs, his writings Research and politics were all intimately tied to his own self-interest, and they permitted him to indulge his own voyeuristic, homoerotic appetite. At a time when being a German Jew, a socialist communist, and homosexual were social and professional liabilities, Herschel distinguished himself by being all three. Born on May 14, 1868, into a large bourgeois Jewish family, with seven siblings, a well-known physician father, and a loving, practical mother in the beautiful, historic seaside region of Pomerania, Prussia. Magnus's early childhood was a lively and happy one. According to his chief biographer, Charlotte Wolfe, after completing his early academics at the Dom Gymnasium, Magnus entered the liberal arts program at the University of Breslau but changed his mind midstream and decided in favor of a medical career. He combined his medical studies at Strasbourg, Munich, Heilsberg, and Berlin with his military obligations and received his medical degree in February 1892. However, he still remained ambivalent about his ultimate life's work. At what point in his life the young Magnus began to personally identify himself as a homosexual male, we do not know but no doubt his homosexual desires played a pivotal role in his final decision to pursue a career in the field of sexology in which he could combine his private interests as a homosexual with his scientific and political interests in promoting homosexuality.
by the time he helped organize the Wissenschaftlich Humanitäts Kommentare Scientific Humanitarian Committee on his 29th birthday in 1897, he was already well acquainted with major works on sexual inversion by Kraft Ebbing and Ulrichs. Hirschfeld had also written articles in favor of homosexuality under the pseudonym Dr. Med Teach Ramian, including the pamphlet Sappho und Socrates, 1896. At about the same time that Hirschfeld was organizing the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, SHC, the well-known pederast Alfred Brand was converting his anarchist journal, Der Eigen, the original, into a mouthpiece for pederasty and homosexuality under the guise of male culture that emphasized the Greek military model and the butch model of the male homosexual. Although Brand and other leaders of the Gemeinschaft der Eigenen, the community of the elite, and Hirschfeld differed on the direction and strategies of the homosexual movement in Germany, they were united in their opposition to paragraph 175 and the need for an ongoing propaganda and political campaign designed to discredit and eventually repeal the nation's anti-sodomy laws. Hirschfeld's committee was seen as the vehicle whereby they could establish a scientific basis for their anti-sodomy campaign. By the time young Dr. Hirschfeld and his team of SHC interviewers and data collectors entered the vast Boyapolis of Berlin, the epicenter of homosexual European life, to begin their scientific investigations and studies of male and female sexual inversion, the phenomena of urbanized colonization by large numbers of homosexual men and women was already well underway. That a highly sophisticated international homosexual network was already in place in major cities in Germany as early as the 19th, as early as the 1850s was clear from the journals and writings of homosexualist writers of the period. For example, in April 1867, when the Prussian police arrested Uranian activist Karl Ulrichs on grounds of sedition and raided his apartment in Bergdorf, they discovered lists <coughs> that Ulrichs had drawn up containing the names of prominent homosexuals living in Berlin and the names and addresses of homosexuals living in Paris, London, and Rome. As in Victorian England, the sexual underworld of cosmopolitan Berlin was divided along class lines. The homosexual Haute-Voté favored the elegant first-class hotels and bars in West Berlin were members of the aristocracy High government and military officials and the otherwise rich and famous could indulge their every sexual whim and attend lavish costume balls, all awash with homosexuals, lesbians, and transvestites of every imaginable description. The lower classes had their own haunts for pickups and entertainment in the poorer neighborhoods of North and South Berlin. In addition to private houses, homosexuals could drink, eat, dance, and carry on their affairs at the cafes and taverns along the Tiergarten and the Friedrichstrasse that catered to homosexuals and other criminal trade. The soldier prostitute was on familiar was as familiar a figure in the garrison districts of Germany as he was in England. There were also numerous sports clubs and fraternities that operated in centers as centers of male culture. In terms of law enforcement, by the late 1800s, the Criminal Police Department, Kriminalpolizei in Berlin, had already established a special homosexual unit in room 161 at police headquarters on the Alexanderplatz. Here, records were kept on suspected and convicted homosexuals and transvestites, as well as blackmailers. From 1905 to 1919, Police Commissioner Hans von, von Treskow served as director of the Homosexual <clears throat> Task Force. Commissioner Treskow estimated that there were more than 100,000 men living in Berlin who were addicted to the vice.
As a whole, the police had mellowed in their treatment of yearnings since the days of Willem the First. They now dealt more leniently with cases. <coughs> <coughs> they now dealt more leniently with cases involving consenting adults, but harsher with male prostitutes with male transvestites, whom they forced to register as women. The police were most severe in cases involving violence and or convicted pederasts and prostitutes and con men who attempted to blackmail wealthy or influential homosexual clients. Agents provocateur were rarely used by the authorities to spy on suspected homosexuals, except in extraordinary cases such as those involving national security or organized male prostitution rings. Every once in a while, there were incidents of police corruption by wealthy homosexuals, as with the case of Herr von Merscheid Hulesheim, a high official of Berlin's criminal police and member of Hirschfeld's SHC, who used to run interference for Fritz Krupp at the Bureau, bureau before he, Krupp, committed suicide. Of course, as the founder and leader of the SHC, and as an active homosexual, Herschel's name was on the Polisai Presidium's notorious pink list, along with many lesser-known homosexuals who had found both safe haven from the police and employment at the SHC headquarters located in the Charlottesburg district of Berlin. Charlottenburg district of Berlin. The SHC's campaign for sex reform in Germany. As stated in its Articles of Incorporation and Constitution on May 15, 1897, the aims of Hirschfeld's Scientific and Humanitarian Committee, SHC, were to conduct research into homosexuality and allied variations in their biological, medical, and ethnological significances, as well as their legal, ethical, and humanitarian situation and to change public opinion about homosexuality through publications, pamphlets, scientific talks, and popular lectures. Executive power rested with a small circle of supervisors called Obmanner. Membership was open to all, however, by 1900, it had only 70 members. In, 19, in 1899, the first volume of Jahrbuch for Sexual Stufen, the official journal, and organization mouthpiece of the SHC rolled off the presses. The philosophical underpinnings of the committee were a mixture of social Darwinism, Nietzscheanism, Nietzscheism, racial hygiene, and sexual improvement. For Hirschfeld especially, eugenics proved remained the focal point of the sexology and remained the focal point of sexology and sociology. Politically, the SHC preached the gospel of radical socialism and communism, and although its primary goal was the decriminalization of homosexual acts and the repeal of paragraph 175, in fact, the SHC involved itself in the widest possible range of sexual reform issues, including abortion rights, birth control for individuals, combined with Malthusian programs of population control for national government, sex instruction for youth, and adults, women's emancipation, eugenic sterilization, artificial insemination, open marriages, no-fault divorce, pornography, prostitution, and venereal disease. It is noteworthy that one of Hirschfeld's first acts as the head of the SHC was to lobby for the repeal of paragraph 218 of the German Penal Code that prohibited induced abortion. The SHC opened its campaign against paragraph 175 on December of 1897 by delivering a petition to decriminalize homosexual acts to the Reichstag and Bundestag. The petition had been drawn up by Hirschfeld and signed by more than 3,000 German citizens, including Professor Richard von Kraft Ebbing, Albert Einstein, Thomas Mann, and other prominent sexologists, jurists, artists, publishers, and socialists. The opposition forces composed of mainline Protestant churches and the Roman Catholic Church were led by Pastor Scholl, who opposed the 
SHC petition in a speech to the Reichstag on January 19, 1898, reminding the government officials of the biblical injunction against homosexual acts. Among the many arguments for the decriminalization of homosexual acts presented by Hirschfeld were new scientific research into the nature of sexual inversion had demonstrated without exception that it is an inborn and irreversible condition. Therefore, the earning or uranier should not be punished for acting on his natural erotic attraction towards his own towards the same sex. Homosexual intercourse was in no way different than heterosexual acts, different from heterosexual acts. The repeal of anti-sodomy laws in France, Italy, and Holland, and other countries did not result in lowered moral standards. Homosexuality was not synonymous with sodomy, and coitus analis and oralis occurred comparatively rarely in homosexuals, at least as rarely as among normal people. Homosexuals did not seduce immature juveniles and pedicardio pederasty and love for juveniles was as rare in inverts as in normal people, in normal populations. Paragraph 175 made people feel guilty about their homosexual appetites and drove many to commit suicide or pay off blackmailers. The law also encouraged the vice of male prostitution. Prosecution of inverts caused exilism and deprivation of the fatherland. The petition did not did note the conditions under which homosexual actions should be punished. They included cases that involved force or threat of force, minors under the age of 16, the feeble-minded, or those actions which offended public decency. The 1897 petition failed, but the SHC continued its lobbying efforts against paragraph 175 for another 30 years. In spite of all its propaganda, efforts in favor of homosexuality, the SHC could not convince the burgeoning middle class that homosexuality was normal and that homosexuals uh, as a group presented no moral or physical threat to society, particularly youth. Moreover, as Wolf acknowledged, the majority of scientists dismissed Hirschfeld's theories and SHC actions as self-serving and a vulgarization of science. The political right was against their appeal of paragraph 175. The national press was divided on the matter. Many Berliners were particularly hostile to SHC's nonstop use of public surveys on homosexuality, which they viewed correctly so as a form of homosexual proselytization, proselytization and recruitment. In one case, a group of students found the committee's questionnaire on homosexuality offensive and took Hirschfeld to court. Hirschfeld's biographer, Charlotte Webb, Charlotte Wolfe, claimed that the presider in the case, Chief Justice Issenbeel, was a notorious homophobic who fined Hirschfeld and ordered him to pay court costs. Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld as physician and social scientist. Hirschfeld attracted a large number of patients from around the world to the SHC Center. Wolf characterized his attitude toward these news, towards these men and women seeking relief for various psychosexual and physical ailments, including homosexuality, pedophilia, transvestism, genetic disorders, and impotency as helping them to become their ideal self. Throughout his career, Hirschfeld never abandoned his belief that sexual inversion was a biological and unchangeable condition resulting from an interruption of normal fetal, fetal development during the first three months of gestation. Herschel placed great emphasis on sexual inversion as a state of mind. That is, he defined an earning by his sexual feelings or emotional attraction toward men, not by his homoerotic actions. Homosexual acts, such as sodomy, he said, played only a minor role in the condition. The proposition that homosexuality was all in the mind and rarely acted upon was, of course, a lie, as Hirschfeld well knew and Wolf admits. 
Nevertheless, he found it a useful tool in his efforts to refashion the public's image of the homosexual. Although Hirschfeld had publicly testified that he favored laws to protect youth from homosexual predators, he personally did not believe that pederasty was a criminal offense per se, but rather a form of mental illness. And any sex abuse involving minors, the SHC leader said, it was necessary to establish if the attacker was motivated by criminal motives or by pathological conditions. In cases involving inborn drives, the accused needed treatment, not a prison sentence. Wolf reported that Hirschfeld also believed that sex abuse of minors and the mentally disabled was more prevalent in the lower classes. In 1914, Hirschfeld published a major work on homosexuality uh, and lesbianism, Die Homosexualität des Manns und des Weibes, a pre-Kinsian work based on his interviews with male and female homosexuals from around the world. Among the German professionals who went to over to Hirschfeld's side after reading the text was a chemistry professor named Dr. Wilhelm Oswald, who thanked the Hirschfeld for ridding him of his religious prejudice against homosexuality. Oswald said he was now convinced that the homosexual condition was neither a vice nor a perverted habit. The time had come for religion to try to solve its problems concerning the important question that it had never dared to look in the face, he wrote to Hirschfeld. On the other hand, there were men like Dr. Sigmund Freud, a Kabbalistic Jew, who were critical of Hirschfeld's abolition, absolutist position on sexual inversion as an inborn and non-reversible condition. Freud's views on the nature and cause of homosexuality were rather complex and often contradictory, but he did insist that there was a form of homosexual attachment that was acquired and not innate and that it could be cured through psychoanalysis. Freud was joined by Dr. August Forel, who also believed that there were two kinds of sexual inversion, one inborn and a pseudo-homosexuality that was acquired and could be cured. Interestingly, Farrell advised his homosexual patients against marriage not only out of hereditary considerations, but also because they used women as housekeepers and had contempt for them in their hearts. It was not until 1920 that Hirschfeld completed his premier opus, Sexual Pathology, Sexual Pathology, the three-volume work, Sexual Pathology, Sexual Pathology, the three-volume work covered a wide range of sex-related issues, including masturbation, artificial insemination, sexual neurosis, endocrine functions in human sexuality and homosexuality. During his long career, Hirschfeld published hundreds of medical and social-political articles and tracts on every aspect of human sexuality. But in all cases, the bottom line remains the same, down with paragraph 175, full sexual emancipation for homosexuals. With the creation of the Institute for Sexual Science, ISS, in Berlin in 1918, Hirschfeld's lifelong dream of an international center for sexology research and treatment of sexually dysfunctional men and women was realized. The offices of the SHC were transferred to the Institute, and Hirschfeld established his residence in what had been the grand domicile of the French ambassador to Berlin. The Institute embodied a vast complex of medical offices, research and forensic laboratories, fully equipped lecture halls, a library containing 24,000 books and a collection of 35,000 photos, and exquisite guest rooms for visiting dignitaries, so foreign physicians and sexologists, and well-known homosexual visitors, including Andre Gide and Christopher Isherwood. Magnus Hirschfeld, the private man, a prototype of the cosmopolitan earning. To the casual observer, Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld would have appeared to be just another typical well-to-do bourgeois Berliner, reserved in manner, fashionably dressed with a kindly grandfatherly face. It was an image that Hirschfeld carefully cultivated. In private life, however, 
when he knew he was safe and among his own kind, the highly compartmentalized SHC leader would let down his hair and indulge his predatory and sexual his predatory sexual instinct for feminine-looking, respectable young men with just enough rough trade thrown in to make life interesting. Like Wilde, he took a certain pleasure in introducing some well-hung but uneducated young men to his world of culture and taste. Also, like Wilde, he always had to be the center of attention, surrounded by, surrounded invariably by a crowd of adoring young men, each vying for their master's affection. Please call me Papa, he would tell them, and they did. Over his lifetime, Hirschfeld had hundreds of sexual partners, but there were only two who were really important to him. The first was Carl Giese, a handsome-looking but effeminate-acting girly young man who met Hirschfeld sometime in 1919 or 1920. Giese became Hirschfeld's longtime lover, trusted collaborator, and principal archivist at the Institute for Sexual Science. With the exception of his favorite sister, Francisca, like many homosexuals, Hirschfeld had little, if any, contact with other members of his own family. Giese and his fellow queens and transvestites became Hirschfeld's new family at the Institute. After Papa's death, Giese attempted to get a medical degree to continue the work of his master, but was unsuccessful. He committed suicide in the spring of 1938. The other great love of Hirschfeld's life, later life was Tao Li, a 23-year-old Chinese scholar whom Hirschfeld met in Shanghai in 1931 while he was on a world tour. Tao Li quickly became a rival of Giza for Hirschfeld's affections, even though Giza had taken on another lover to satisfy his darker masochist needs. Tao Li had aspirations of becoming a Chinese Hirschfeld, but after Hirschfeld's death, he left Europe for Hong Kong and was not heard from again. At still another level, Hirschfeld satisfied his voyeuristic tendencies by taking periodic jaunts to Berlin's red light district. Here he carried on his scientific expeditions and interviews with homosexuals from all classes and picked up renters to fill his more carnal needs. Spiritually speaking, Herschel was fundamentally a Gnostic Kabbalistic Jew. Like many homosexuals, he felt drawn to esoteric and occult belief systems that were free of dogma and moral sanctions. In the fall of 1931, during a trip to India, he attempted to make contact with Annie Basant, the head of the Theosophy movement in India, but she was unable to receive him due to illness. What Herschel lacked in personal religiosity, however, he more than made up in his hatred for the Catholic Church. 300 plus years later, and poor Magnus hadn't yet recovered from the Council of Trent that Council of Trent held from 1545 to 1563. In second reform to the in the light of sexual science, in sexual reform in the light of sexual science, a lecture presented at the World League for Sexual Reform in Copenhagen in 1928, Hirschfeld decried the Church's attempts to use theology instead of science in to formulate sexual morals. A new scientific view of love was needed, unprejudiced by the Church, one that separated love and sex from procreation, he claimed. According to Hirschfeld, sex reform within the Catholic Church had been stifled at Trent and forever after. At a later WLSR forum held in Vienna in 1930, in a speech titled Sexual Liberation, Hirschfeld restated his antagonism towards the Church as the final arbiter of morals. He concluded that the, with the warning that we can't deceive ourselves that we have yet fully overcome the sexual legislation of the Middle Ages, and he urged his audience to do everything they could to end all attacks that attack, to end all laws that attack sexual and national minorities. Hirschfeld and Stalinland. From his youth, Hirschfeld was always attracted to Marxism and radical socialist causes. 
1900, when he was 32, Hirschfeld and his sister Francisca joined the pioneer utopian commune of the Order for the True Life, founded by radical journalists Heinrich and Julius Hart in the village of Friedrichshagen near Berlin. Although he, his, although he enjoyed the comradeship the society offered, he didn't have much time for its founding spirit based on the fatherland of man, based on the brotherhood of man and in a spirit of purity of mind and body. For a highly sexual, for a highly sexed homosexual male like Magnus, all the talk about purity of the mind and body was a real turnoff. Even after the founding, of the Weimar Republic in 1918, when Herschel hastily changed his allegiance from the Kaiser to the new socialist state with democratic principles. He still believed the Soviet model to be superior. Wolf recorded that Herschel had documented friendship in and was a fellow traveler of the Soviet, of the Union of Soviet of the Union of Socialist Physicians, which was closely aligned with the Communist Party. After the Bolsheviks seized power in Russia in October 1917, Herschel warmly embraced Lenin's revolution. This was a significant decision, given the fact that both Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels were hopelessly homophobic, as was Lenin. From their perspective as Believers in enlightened scientific and biological determinism, heterosexual monogamy was man's natural condition, whereas homosexuality was the byproduct of the degenerate and effeminate bourgeois that would disappear with the victory of the proletariat. Engels was particularly critical of anything that smelled Greek. Lenin, a disciple of Marx and Engels, was even more vicious in his personal attitudes towards homosex which he viewed as a narcissistic, self-indulgent, and social contagion, anti-social contagion, that robbed the collective of heirs and undermined the new social order. Marxism, socialism demanded that the individual subordinate his personal needs and desires to the needs of the state, a demand that created an historical ambivalence, if not outright hostility, toward the idea of homosexual emancipation. And while it is true that between 1917, when the entire Russian Tsarist criminal code was abolished, and 1933 to 1934, when Stalin restored the penalties for sodomy under the Soviet criminal code, there existed a legal limbo in which sodomy was not criminalized. Nevertheless, many government officials, jurists, and the Russian people remained hostile to same-sex relations and continued to take steps to reverse such acts to repress such acts under existing statutes that prohibited disorderly conduct and the corruption of minors. In June 1926, Stalin invited Herschel to make a study tour of Russia to see how the Soviet Union's new sexual freedoms were working and to visit Soviet eugenics laboratories. The Soviet party line of benign neglect toward adulting adult consenting homosexuals during this period was influenced by three factors. The first was that Stalin was too preoccupied with consolidating his power and eliminating his political rivals to think about a new criminal code. The second was the rise of the sexual reform movement in Russia that advocated the decriminalization of same-sex behavior. The third was the growing influence of psychoanalysis on the Russian medical profession that saw homosexuality as a medical and or emotional disorder that should be treated rather than as a crime to be punished. One can only imagine the disappointment that Hirschfeld must have experienced when he learned that in December 1933, acting under Stalin's orders, the executive committee of the Communist Party had introduced legislation that would recriminalize sodomy between a consenting adult homosexuals throughout the USSR. The penalty for simple sodomy under Article 154A was set at three to five years imprisonment. If force was used or dependence 
or minors were involved. The punishment was raised to five to eight years at hard labor. The idea that homosexuality was a disease had simply been a ruse instigated by the decadent West to undermine the Soviet state, claimed Stalin. But that error was, had now been corrected. Sodomy was once again a crime. The Soviets had learned a valuable lesson. A society intent on its own survival and welfare must repress vice. Counter-revolutionary perverts must be excised and isolated to prevent the moral contamination of Soviet society, public officials declared. The, these were some of the arguments presumed presented by party leaders in favor of recriminalization. Apparently, both the Soviet people and Soviet leaders who followed Stalin agreed with the prohibition, for it remained essentially intact until the 1980s. Before closing the page on Hirschfeld and Stalin, I think it important to note that regardless of the legal status of sodomy in the Soviet Union and regardless of the scorn that Marx, Engels, and Lenin, and later Stalin, heaped upon the heads of homosexuals, Russian leaders, including Tsar Nicholas II, were not above exploiting sodomites for a certain tasks that the government deemed essential to its welfare, including sexual entrapment, espionage, and spying, which leads us to the important but still unanswered question as to whether it was or not Hirschfeld shared his vast list of questionnaires and patient records of German and other European and English and American homosexuals with Stalin. We already know that during the 1920s and early 1930s, both Communist and National Socialist Nazis uncover, undercover agents were employed at Hirschfeld Institute for Sexual Science in Berlin. There they had access to ill-secured secret lists of SHC members and Hirschfeld's private files of prominent homosexuals from around the world, including those who had been treated at the ISS. We also know from the Krupp affair that Hirschfeld himself was not above using blackmail in order to secure donations with which to build his palatial institute and that the Social Democrats with whom he was politically aligned used Hirschfeld's evidence against Krupp that ultimately led to the Cannon King's suicide. It is my belief that Stalin did secure at least some of Hirschfeld's secret files, either from Hirschfeld himself or, as in the case of Hitler, from files. Soviet agents pilfered from the SHC Institute files, and that these files were used by Stalin for purposes of entrapment and recruitment of spies and espionage, an area that we will explore in depth in Chapter 5 on the Cambridge Spies. When Hirschfeld died on May 14, 1935, in exile in Nice, France, he was still wearing his political blinders concerning all things Soviet. Nor had he ever given up on his campaign to abolish paragraph 175. Yet at the time of his death, Germany's anti-sodomy laws were more entrenched than ever. The credit or blame, as the case may be, for this continued support for, by the German people for anti-homosexual legislation can be traced to what became the most notorious homosexual scandal of the 20th century, the Orlenberg Affair. The Orlenberg Affair. Unlike the wild and even the corrupt scandals that were essentially personalist in nature, the Orlenberg Affair became many of, involved many of Germany's leading government and military figures, as well as the royal household of Kaiser Wilhelm II. Its far-reaching ramifications left an indelible mark on Germany's national life and foreign policies for decades to come. The chief players of the, in the Ullenberg affair were ex-Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, 1871-1890, who served Kaiser Wilhelm I in the founding of the Second Reich and was the primary architect of real politics that brought a balance of power to Europe. Kaiser Wilhelm II, 1888-1918, the ninth, ninth King of Prussia and the third Emperor of Germany, Maximilian Hardin Felix Ernst 
1861 to 1927, the Jewish editor and publisher of Die Zunkunft, The Future. Count later first Prince Philip von Eulenburg Hertefeld, Count of Sandel, 1847-1921, the Kaiser's closest advisor and devoted friend. Count Kuno von Moltke, 1847-1923, commander general of the Berlin military garrison and Eulenburg's intimate friend, Prince uh, Bernard Prince Heinrich Bülow, the imperial chancellor. The genesis of the Eulenburg crisis began in March 1890, 17 years before the first Eulenburg hardened trial, when Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm II wrested the reins of power from Germany's Iron Chancellor Otto von Bismarck and his son Herbert, the foreign minister. Bismarck's chancellor dictatorship was planted by Hohenzollern monarchical regime in which the Kaiser, the imperial family, and court formed the center of the Reich's ruling body and upon which all government officials, military and civilian, and the vast state bureaucracy were dependent. Wilhelm II was a complex character whose life, in the words of one of his most sympathetic but realistic biographers, Isabel B. Hull, was an elaborate masquerade. He paraded under as the consummate soldier, warlord, always in uniform, always fierce, hard, steady, an amalgam of the masculine virtues of his beloved grandfather, whom he tried to emulate. Hull said, but he was actually none of these. He was, in fact, slightly feminine in appearance, with delicate health and a nervous, volatile, and unstable constitution. Historian Professor John C. Roll of the University of Sussex cites as cites six dominant features of the Kaiser's personality, immaturity, vindictiveness, unrealism, an overestimation of his own abilities, an offensive, even sadistic sense of humor, and finally a love of ostentation and dress, and including military uniforms and historical costumes. These were traits that would hardly recommend, recommend themselves to a description of a ruler committed to restoring power to the throne. Further, when, whereas his grandfather, Kaiser Wilhelm I, had surrounded himself with men of outstanding ability, like von Bismarck, the grandson preferred the company of less capable political and military advisors that were more pliant to his will and the spirit of politic. Wilhelm II's entourage of or inner circle was divided into two competing camps, the powerful army officer corps of the Prussian military and the civilian Junker ruling class, Prussia's privileged landed nobility headed by the Kaiser's sole bosom friend, Count Philip von Eulenburg. There is absolutely no mystery as to why the young Kaiser was so attached to Eulenburg. Politically, the Count was a staunch arch-conservative royalist. Personally, he was a thoroughly continental, gracious, enlightened, gracious, cultured, knowledgeable aristocrat, a brave soldier decorated with the Iron Cross and an accomplished artist and writer. Gymnasium-educated Eulenburg had forsaken a career in the military for a career in the law and later the diplomatic corps which brought him to the Wilhelmian, Wilhelminian court. Eulenburg and his darling Kaiser also shared a special interest in religious spiritualism, seances, mediums, and events of the paranormal and supernatural, a movement that was very much in vogue in Germany and throughout Europe until throughout Europe during the mid-19th century. Dabbling in the occult, however, invited condemnation from certain military and diplomatic quarters, more so perhaps than dabbling in homoerotica. In 1875, Eulenburg married the Swedish Countess Augusta von Sandels, by whom he had eight children. But the most important woman in Eulenburg's life remained his mother, Alexandrine von Eulenburg, his supreme 
competent and solace until her death in 1902. All of this biographical data would be meaningless, however, if it were not yet put into the proper context of the central shaping impulse that dominated Olenberg's private and public life. His love of men and the idealized, passionately romantic, sometimes sexual, male friendships he formed into a small but influential coterie around the Kaiser that became known as the Eulenberg Circle. It became known as the Liebenberg Circle. It is noteworthy that in October 1897, Eulenberg's younger brother, Friedrich Freddy, was forced to resign from his officer corps regiment in order to escape a military court-martial investigation into his alleged homosexual behavior charges that had been initiated by Friedrich's wife, who was seeking a divorce after 20 years of marriage. There is no question that Ornenberg's homosexual life had been an open secret in the inner circles of the Kaiser's courts long before the scandal broke. For example, in 1899, when the old Reich Chancellor Prince Clodwig uh, Clodwig zu Hohenhoer Schillingshurst first, a relative of the Empress, heard the rumor that Count von Eulenberg, Count von Eulenberg was to be raised to the rank of first prince. He wrote an angry letter to his son, Alexander, denouncing Eulenberg as a prize scoundrel who literally begged for the title while protesting he resisted the honor. Alexander Hohenhola, Alexander Hohenloa responded to the to his father's letter by mocking the Kaiser's newly baked princess. I have just read in, in the newspapers that Bill E was to be raised to the rank of prince. The assumption that P eight the fell Eulenberg is Eulenberg is aiming to acquire the post of Stadtholder, governor of Alsace-Lorraine, seems very plausible to me. The salary of 200,000 marks he could make good use of, as we know, for all kinds of purposes. It is a matter of indifference to me, as I certainly won't become Stadtholder in the near future, as if he should treat me badly, and if he should treat me badly, I'll simply submit my resignation as Berserk's presidents in Colmar and buy myself a hundred thousand acres of land in Siberia. And this is the end of my reading of the right of sodomy, homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church. And so I'll end my podcast here. There's no time for the catechism in my 52 minutes already. So, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.